My safe word will be whiskey. Sorry, Rod, what was that? Whiskey. Lost in Translation, Park Whiskey Web uh, Podcast. It's not Steve, it's Sean, Dark Cloud. I'm introducing this episode. We uh, have Travis and Sean McCalder with us, Yeg Whiskey Nights and Edmonton Scotch Club. How you doing, guys? Doing good. Hey, it's Travis. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) And uh, today we have another rad guest that we've been looking forward to talking to for a while uh mr neil Hendricks. um neil i i'm gonna give you the chance to kind of give us your title and where you fall in the morrison uh distillers business structure and uh we'll also get you to talk a bit about your whiskey journey off the hop uh where you started from what brought you to scotland uh kind of where you started drinking whiskey how you got into it and then obviously how you got into the business side of it as well. So welcome to the podcast, Neil. Good. Good evening. Good afternoon. <laughs> yeah, we're always seven hours apart from, from all you Scotland folks. So it's we're either drinking early or you're drinking late. Yeah, this is this is this is a good time. But um no thanks. Um I suppose, you know. My whiskey journey started back in 1999 um, after a failed university attempt. Um, started working at a at a whiskey bar in a in a hotel in in Cape Town, South Africa, and I ended up behind the bar by chance. I actually applied for a job as a, a chef or a cook. I wanted to become a chef, and um, there was no space in the kitchen at the time, but the general manager. Um, said to me that you know they've got some some slots open in, in the whiskey bar that they're about to open um, and they're literally looking for someone to polish glasses so that's that's where I started and I thought you know what if I can get my foot into this hotel they're going to be opening the biggest whiskey bar in the southern hemisphere um, it's not a bad place to be it's one of the best boutique hotels in, in the world and um, eventually, when a, a position becomes available in the kitchen, you know, I'm already if I'm already working for for the hotel, that should get me in. Um, and positions did open in the kitchen, um, and I just got stuck behind the bar, <laughs> and um, I fell in love with um, with this liquid. And that was that was in 1999. How old are you at the time? Sorry, I don't want to age you, but just to. Jeez, I was 19. 19 years old and working in one of the biggest whiskey bars in in probably in the world at that time um it was pretty close in terms of size i I remember when we opened we started with about 460 um different whiskeys and that included uh bourbon irish um blended whiskey and single malt um and i suppose that gave me thinking back that gave me a really good sort of broad understanding of whiskey as a as a category um because i wasn't only focusing on on single malt whiskey or or blended whiskey also um focusing on bourbon and rye and irish and um and i think 
by the time I left, we probably had just north of six or seven hundred um, different whiskies on the on the shelf at any given time. It sounds so, like a, it sounds yeah. like a fun, fun place to work. Had you been like, because you're only 19, had you been, had you drank, you know, whiskey before as a, or was this, this is just kind of you going face first into it? Well, no, I, I remember a friend of mine, David from Felden, who, who is a winemaker. Um, he, he used to try and get me to drink whiskey. But um, we were at university, you know, and, and the first time I had to drink whiskey, well, I say I had to drink whiskey. I, I tried whiskey with lots of ice, lots of water. Um, and then as time went on, you kind of reduce the quantity of water or the quantity of ice um, until you get to a stage where you, I drank it just on ice, you know, and whiskey on the rocks. That was, that was the thing. And at 19 years old, that was, that was cool. You know, when you walk into a bar and, and you ask for a whiskey on the rocks or a whiskey neat, you know, you, you weren't drinking um, brandy and coke, which at the time in, in South Africa, you know, brandy and coke is the 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 drink of the, the students. Um, so whiskey was quite a sophisticated choice of, of beverage. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember doing the interview and they asked me what I, what do you know about whiskey? And the honest answer was very, very little. Um, I, I knew that it was liquid. I knew that if you drank enough of it, it would give you a hangover um, and get intoxicated. Um, but other than that, I honestly did not know much. The majority of my supposed education started in that, in that little whiskey bar underneath the hotel. And then in 2002, about three years after we opened, I got the opportunity to come to Scotland on an exchange program and work at the Glen Eagles Hotel. Oh, nice. And I worked there for six weeks and there's a familiar, um, an Irish fellow called Gary came over to South Africa the year after. So I, I came over here for six weeks, um, worked in the hotel, and at the time, I remember they were one of the biggest um, accounts for Black Beaumore. Um, and I went over to Beaumore Distillery for a weekend. It was actually my birthday. And that was my first introduction to Beaumore Distillery back in 2002. And I don't know, 20 odd years later, um, I'm, I'm working for the family that at the time, well, not at the time, but just before that owned the distillery. And that's, that's pretty cool because there's a, uh, and we'll talk about old Perth a little bit later, but, um, old Perth 2324, which were cult favorites here in Alberta, both of those had a bit of a connection to that distillery as well. So it's just kind of neat. All this stuff tends to somehow fall, fall into you know, fall, fall into place, I guess. It's like it was meant to happen. Yeah, it is strange. I mean, I, I was playing golf with a friend of mine who's in the whiskey industry. Um, and she used to work for Glenmorangie for probably 15 or 20 years. And we've known each other for 
probably the best part of 15 years. And she told me that the first time I met her, let's say 15 years ago in South Africa, I told her that one day I want to work for a small independent family-owned whiskey business in Scotland. <laughs> and I, I honestly never remember saying that to her. Um, but it is quite funny thinking back that that is something I once said. And um, and obviously whether I wrote it down or not, it's, it's stuck in my head and here we are. One thing that I want to ask about is um, in South Africa, what was the whiskey scene like before you left? Was like Obviously they had this huge bar with 700 whiskeys outside of like a hotel setting was was whiskey a big thing down there gosh um south africa is a fascinating market um, because you have such a diverse um consumer in terms of demographic and and um sort of income class if you if you like but whiskey, first of all, is, is a really, really popular drink. I think at the time, South Africa was between sort of seventh or eleventh um, in terms of volume. Um, I, I, but you know, South Africans were, were known for, or are known for, enjoying a drink, and, and whiskey was was is different, definitely one of the favourites. But it is predominantly blended whiskey. Bells was was the the biggest selling whiskey at the time, and also um, Jack Daniels and Jamison, so Irish and, and bourbon. But majority of whiskey consumed in South Africa is big brands, so Johnny Walker, um, and then if you go into the malts, it's driven by Glenfiddich, Glenlivet, Glenmorangie. Um, McAllen a little bit, but it, it's really an image and a, and a status symbol. Um, and if you go into some of the, by the time I left, um, if you had to go into Soweto or any one of the, the townships in, in Johannesburg or Cape Town, you know, you would walk around a shanty town, a township, go into this bar and on the inside, people will be sitting on the table with 21-year-old Glenn Fiddick, 18-year-old Glenn Morangie, 18-year-old McCallans on the table. And and I'm not talking about a glass. You know, there's no such thing as going to the bar and ordering a, a dram or a one or two drinks. You order a bottle and they you put it on the table um, and next to it you've got a bucket of ice and you've got some sparkling apple juice or ginger ale and lemonade and and that's you <laughs> um so it it's it was an absolutely fascinating time oh, that's pretty cool I, I love hearing how whiskey is consumed in different parts of the world and just kind of you know we, we we're really connected to the whiskey nerds here but you know i think stuff like that is still actually kind of common you know maybe not with that expensive whiskey but yeah well i mean you do have you do have the the flip side of that as well so you, you do have the really sort of traditional whiskey bars where guys walk in there's a beautiful whiskey bar in, in a village called dulstrom called wild about whiskey about an hour and a half north of Johannesburg. 
Um, and I reckon they they must be at the moment probably one of the largest in terms of quantity of stock on site in in, in the world. Um, and there you would get people that go in, you know, they drive from Johannesburg, so they drive one and a half hours to go and do a whiskey tasting. And, you know, it's become sort of a destination bar. So people go there, they do one or two or three tastings a day, but it's all about the liquid quality. It's all about education. It's all about understanding more about, about whiskey. It's about appreciation. Um, and then on the flip side, you know, Saturday night in in the center of Johannesburg in, in the nightclubs, um, together with your bottle of Belvedere or your bottle of champagne, you know, the guys have a, a bottle of whiskey on the table. So the um, you and I have talked about this because obviously um, we used to work together and you mentioned this collection of whiskey that you have back home and that it's it's still there mm. i believe i i kind of just wanted to know if you can give us a little bit of like how much whiskey are we talking and why don't you bring it to scotland <laughs> a little sneak peek if you will oh, uh, <laughs> well I, I i hope it's still there because <laughs> um, we were back home we were in south africa in december for a, a month and my dad kept trying to to get me to this um garage which which stored um and shout out to my mom because she's still paying for the storage <laughs> but i've um i i remember it was gosh i just started working so it must have been 2000 or 2001 um they came over to the UK to come and visit my brother who was doing a, a, a year's work in the in the UK. And they brought back a bottle of Artbeck 10-year-old as a gift for myself because I couldn't join them. And that was the first bottle of whiskey I ever received. Um, and I still have that bottle in the collection. And since then, you know, I, I started not collecting for collecting sake, but I started accumulating bottles of whiskey um so at the moment I, i'd say this i mean there must be probably between five and six hundred bottles um that's impressive and <laughs> and and the the strangest thing is i've not added to it in the last eight or ten years um but my dad keeps sending every now and again i'd get a message from my dad saying He's going away for a weekend with his golf buddies. Um, he needs to take a bottle of whiskey. And and then I go, well, send me a picture of what you're thinking about. Because usually I would give him, you know, a, a bottle of Glamorangy or McKellen, whichever one of the brands that I used to work on. Um, and every now and again, he'd send me a picture. And in that picture would be... Um, one of the first releases of Port Ellen or a, and a three-year-old Brora. And he goes, can I take one of these? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for reminding me that I've got that. <laughs> yeah, do not give him free range of that collection. No, um, but I suppose I should. I mean, the ambition is to bring it over here one day when I've got a 
when I'm settled and I've got a spot where I can show it off to myself. You know, I, I'd love to have a room where I've got all my bottles on the wall and I can look at them um, because you, you do. I reckon I could probably tell you where 80% of them came from and how I came about acquiring them. Because I used to do a bit of buying for other collectors in South Africa. And generally speaking, if you know, if I buy a parcel of whiskey, um, I then have the opportunity to pick one or two that I, that I would take as commission. <laughs> um, That's a good setup. So, yeah, that was... Yeah, that was fun times. The, the problem is you buy them and you think, okay, you know, I'm buying these to open them and and, and share them with, with, with friends and people that will appreciate it. But once you've got them, there's an emotional something that happens. Um, and I just go, well, there are some bottles that I don't want to open yet. And think it's sort of yeah. one of those things with with most collectors i think that aren't collecting to sell on the secondary market you're you're collecting because you think it's cool to have those bottles and your mindset I, is i would never sell it yeah one day i'm going to pour this for someone special like when travis comes to visit in scotland i'm going <laughs> to crack that brora and pour it for him that kind of stuff no, so i mean on my wedding day i pulled out a, a, a few nice bottles when my daughters were born I, I open up something special. Um, but, yeah, I mean, people have, and my dad keeps saying to me, well, why don't you just sell some of it? And I, no. no. Um, that's why I, I bought it. Um, so, but it needs to come over at some stage. Well, it's, it's kind of like for us, like for me personally, um obviously with travis and dave working for you know a rare drams and morrison mckay and old perth carnmore um we were force fed some of the old perth 23 24 some of that stuff and those became some of my favorite bottles ever so you know i bought two of the 23 two of the 24 now the new 1996 and i went through the the first bottles and now it's almost, it's that same thing where the second bottles, because they, they have such meaning behind them and such a tie to our friends that, you know, I don't want to open them unless I'm opening it with these guys and sharing it with them. And it, it's, it's, it's awesome that it, you know, around the world, it's the same sentiment when it comes to whiskey. It's such a social drink and one that you share with the people closest to you and, the your your friends you you want to save something that you think is special yourself to share it with a uh, somebody that means a lot to you and hopefully they find it just as special it's interesting yeah, I, I just, can't agree with you more interesting mindset of collecting a consumable item even the concept of con collecting yes. a consumable <laughs> item doesn't make a whole lot of sense but we do it anyways so it's just interesting <laughs> We all do it, so it's okay. I think we, we we need to find a different word instead of collecting. We're just accumulating or acquiring. I don't know. Um, but people that buy, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I certainly don't do it as a, for an investment purpose or to resell it. It is 
it is originally purchased or acquired to to consume um but because of the emotional bond i've not been um in the right position to to open some of them some of them i've opened for sure um but there are some bottles that i know that are irreplaceable so when you go ahead and open it you want to make sure that it's with the right people yeah, I, t- I totally, sure. totally get that sentiment. Um, like, obviously, you're from South Africa and you're in Scotland now. So to pack up and leave your home and just, you know, transfer your life across the world, it can't be an easy thing to decide to do. And what was it that originally brought you to Scotland in the first place? Did my accent give that away? A little bit. I've worked. With, I've worked with a few few South Africans, so it's a familiar accent to me. No, I mean, I mean, I fell in love with with whiskey. Um, yeah, back in probably nineteen ninety nine, and Scotland. Ever since I came to Glen Eagles, I, I remember the first time. Gosh, the first time I flew into Edinburgh in two thousand two when I came to visit to to work at Glen Eagles, um, I, I literally started started crying, and there was um, something that happened. And you know, I've always wanted to come to to Scotland. Finally, I was I was there, um, and since then, you know, I've been back multiple times through my work with Edrington and and, and Murray Tennessee um, to visit the distilleries and and to get some really fascinating experiences um so i've been very fortunate in in that and there was always a part of me that thought you know one day i want to either work or live in in scotland and specifically edinburgh um i found edinburgh is a, a city that's small enough that you won't get lost um you can walk everywhere but it's big enough that it is that it will keep you entertained um and what i found with edinburgh was that unlike south africa at the time people were generally speaking very kind um didn't look down upon people with less wealth or or money than than they had they treat the guy on the side of the street the the same as they they do their friends and um and other people so that really appealed to me so in 2013 it was my last year at mode hennessy um i did a fair amount of traveling the, the two years prior to that and i just needed a, a break i needed a, a new challenge i was in the role for for nine years um, as a brand ambassador for for a company called RGBC, which was the distributor for Edrington and Moe Tennessee in Africa, and I decided to take a to take a, a year off, and instead of literally just traveling the world or getting out of the the country for a year, I decided to do an MBA. Um, I mean, the, my my first attempt at varsity didn't work out, so I thought I'd give it another go. It will at least make my my mom proud. Um, 
So I looked around and Edinburgh University, the business school, actually had a, a pretty good um, master's in business administration course. And I thought, Jesus, I mean, surely that is the next best thing. You know, I can go and do an, get educated um, and do that in the city of my dreams. Um, and I'll go for a year and then I'll be back and, you know, start, start over. So I applied to the university. I got a long story short, I eventually got accepted. I didn't get accepted the first time, um, but eventually got accepted. And I came over in September 2014. And I'm still here. <laughs> so you did a, you could do an MBA, like were you, you were there for one year. Do you just, or does it, one year at the school and then you kind of did it like online courses or how long did it did you actually complete the mba so it's a it's a full intense one-year program um so 12 12 months um but you can't i mean there's there's an mba that you do over two or three years you do part-time um while you work but you know, for me, it was less about, I suppose, less about the MBA. I, I needed a break. I needed something different. Um, and yeah, so I, I resigned from my job at Merge Energy, knowing that it might not be there when I when I finish my MBA in a, in a year. Um, I sold my car. Um, I rented out my house. The, the last two nights I stayed with a, a friend of mine. I packed everything I owned into a garage and two suitcases and I came over. So it was a complete, nope. a complete change. Yeah. There's someone on this podcast who wants to do the exact same thing and move to Ireland. So I think Sean, Sean understands where you're coming from on that. Well, it, it's, it's funny that Neil says when he landed in Edinburgh for the first time, he cried. When I got off the plane in Ireland, I literally laid down and hugged the ground. So I was, it felt like I was home finally. But I, I, totally, I, I, to, I totally get the sentiment. Um, yeah, I won a trip on St. Patrick's Day in 2016 at a bar here. Um, and it was a trip to Ireland. So my wife and I went for 15 days. We did 10 days in Ireland and five in Scotland. And yeah, I mean, it's unreal. The history, the, like you said, Edinburgh to me stood out by far in Scotland. That's it's such a, and when you talk about like friendly people, Neil, I just, I've only been there once for, you know, I think it was eight days, but I just remember like Scottish people being real people. Like they're not, they're not friendly just for being friendly They're They're not, it's not like an over the top. It's just a very, they're very welcoming. Like you go into a pub and there's no, there's no spots at the table and they just let you come and sit down with them. You know, uh, I could totally understand that. Now you, you were, Obviously, you went back to Moe Hennessy for a bit, and after your MBA, they did welcome you back, correct? Well, yeah, after my MBA, um, I, I got to a stage where I started applying for jobs. Um, and my number one priority at, at the time was to stay in the UK um, or Europe. Um, I happened to 
mute a girl during the the NBA and, and you know it would have made sense well I, I wanted to stay in the, in the UK I wasn't ready to go back to South Africa however I needed someone that would sponsor my work visa in all honesty and um, eventually a position came available in Murd Hennessy UK and I knew that you know that would be a safe shot for me because they know who I am. Um, the uh, managing director of Modernity UK could call my my boss, uh, my previous boss Pascal in in South Africa, and ask him about me. And I, I knew things would be would be all right. It was a commercial role, um, which is p part of the reason why I did the MBA is that I, I didn't have to be stuck in a brand ambassadorial role or a marketing role. You know, I could go into a commercial role. Um, but my ambition after the MBA was to join a startup um, or, a, or a smaller company. Um, but Modernity, with its structure to go into a commercial role in the on-trade in London at the time, I knew it would be a very good move. Um, it would give me great exposure within Mode NSE um, because the on trade in London is the most important channel in in the UK or, or Europe for that matter. Um, and it will give me the commercial experience. Um, it, they've got good structure, um, good processes in place, um, decent budgets. So, <coughs> oh, excuse me. So it's not a bad place to start. So um, it was not the most senior role, but it was a, a good move, I, I think. So yeah, I went to move to London in 2018. I remember getting the call on uh, Christmas Eve. Sorry, 2016. I, I got the call on Christmas Eve 2015. I was in South Africa at the time, and they, they called me. HR department, they said, um, you got the job, um, but you need to be in, in London within a week. <laughs> so, well, yeah, it seemed to have worked out and, 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 uh, but it didn't, it, it didn't last too, too long. Like you joined Morrison in, was it 2018 when you came on board there? April, 2018. Yeah, so, so you're, I, I did two years in London. Okay, and then what? So when Morrison calls, or did Morrison get in touch with you, or were you kind of looking? Because you did you still sort of have that idea that you want to go to a smaller company and help them build? So does Morrison reach out to you, or did you reach out to Morrison and see an opportunity to to help a company kind of take things to that next so level? When I got the call to go to London. Um, I called this this girl called Julia, and I said to her, "I'm moving to London. Are you coming with me?" Um, and she's Italian, <laughs> um, and she met me in London on I think it was the seventh of January, um, and we got married two years later or a year and a half later. Um, so our ambition was always to come back to Edinburgh. We met in Edinburgh um, and I've always wanted to come back to Edinburgh. And we said, well, when we start a family, 
then we'll we'll move to Edinburgh. We don't want to have a family in in, in London, right? Um, but in probably in the end of 2017, about November or December, um, I got a phone call from a recruiter. Um, I wasn't looking. She said to me, listen, there's this family-owned business. Um, they'd love to see you. So I met with um, with Peter and Kenny, Kenny Mackay, who was the uh, Kenny Mackay was the managing director at, at the time. And then I met with Jamie Morrison in, in London. Um, yes, and that was, to me, that was as close to a startup as I could get without the risk of a startup because I had the security of the Morrison family behind behind the business. And I could see the potential. Jamie shared with me his, his vision. Um, and it was really all about the potential of the business at that time and the difference that I thought or think that I could make um, that got me got me to to accept it. So then we moved to yeah we moved to Edinburgh in a April two thousand and eighteen. So when you obviously when you joined Morrison um, back then Morrison Mackay, um, it was right at the beginning when the huge transformation that we've seen in the past couple of years had just started. Um, you know, there's new labels, new bottles, new old Perths. Then now there's Mctala, and you know, going through all that. What were some of the biggest challenges for you and the company when you started making those changes? And were you worried changing the labels? You know, two times in a year and a half was that a risk that you guys were kind of weighing? And in the end, do you think that it paid off? No, I suppose the, I mean, when I started, none of this was discussed yet. Um, when I started in, in 2018, it was all very much, this is the brands that we have, um, and we go and we sell these by hand to people who love and are diehard whiskey fans and care about nothing other than what's inside the bottle of the, of in, inside the bottle. So liquid focused and me coming from a a really strong luxury brand company such as Mert Hennessy or even Edrington um, you know I knew that if you wanted to build a serious brand of of anything regardless of whether it's whiskey or not you know fortunately or unfortunately it's about a little bit more than just the liquid and the biggest challenge was to get everyone internally aligned with that um, and to agree that certain changes needed to happen. Um, so Jamie eventually, um, or the Morrison family eventually, um, bought out the, the other shareholders so that they could have full control and ownership of all the whiskey assets or whiskey um, interest, which is the barley farm, the distillery, the inventory business, and the independent bottling, which was Morrison and Mackay at the time. 
because at the time they owned 100% of everything except the independent bottling side of the business, so the branded side of the business. Um, and once that happened, it, it made it a lot easier. So myself, our chairman, our managing director, and um, Hannah, our, our, our marketing manager, set out on this mission to go and have a look at each one of our brands and ask ourselves a question, why does this brand exist? And if we couldn't find an answer, we discontinued it. And it, it was literally as simple as that. You know, the very first question was, who are we and what do we want to do? And we realized very quickly that we wanted to be a Scotch whiskey business. That is it, a branded Scotch whiskey business. But if you take Old Perth, for instance, you know, Old Perth had probably had six or seven different expressions at the time. Um, none of it was consistent. Even if you put the bottles next to one another, they didn't necessarily look like they're part of the same family. Everything was batch bottlings. Um, so even from a liquid point of view, consistency was not a, an issue. Um, yes, the quality of the liquid was, was good, but we change it so often um, that it was really difficult to, to build a strong um, core range of, of products. So, you know, we took Old Perth. We realized that it's very important to us as a business. It's got great history. Um, there's a phenomenal story to tell about Perth as a, as a, a city which essentially was the blending capital of the, the, the world. Um, and the fact that, you know, we want to bring whiskey back to the fair city of Perth and Perthshire, and we're one of the only whiskey companies in the city. Um, but it didn't have an identity. So we stepped back and said, what do we want Old Perth to be? Right, Old Perth will be a sherry matured blended malt scotch whiskey. What's different to anyone else? It's full sherry maturation. We'll make a commitment that it's not a sherry finish. Um, it is full maturation in sherry casks. And the, the biggest, I suppose, one of the biggest discussions around Old Perth, especially the original, was whether to bottle it at 40, 43, or 46%. Um, and I'm very, very happy that we, we ended up going for 46%, non-chill filtered, no color added. Um, because from a commercial point of view, there was a strong argument that it, that it could be the price point that we want to achieve, that it should be 40 or 43%. Um, but given our target audience at the time and the customers that we, that we had, we knew that you know, 46% and especially non-chill filtered, no color, full maturation. Those are all things that are very, very important to them. And we didn't want to lose that. So, yeah, they, I mean, that was, sorry, go for it. Oh, no, I was just saying, I remember talking to you about ABV on one of our car rides across Alberta. And we were talking about the old Strictly Limited brand. And you said, what do you mm. think of the Strictly Limited brand? And I said, well, 
It's at 46%, but I think I'd prefer if it was a little higher at like 48. And you said, me too. You said 48. <laughs> yeah. And you guys went with 47.5. And I, I, I still tell the story as if I had a part of that. So. Well, I don't want to give you everything. <laughs> no, I, su- I suppose, I mean, it was a, an incredible time. And, and thinking back, that's I joined the business in the first, in the first place. Um, there was so much potential, but it, it needed a shift in, in direction. Um, so the, the first thing was the, the corporate identity. So to change to Morrison Scotch Whiskey Distillers, um, our first release was um, Carmore, um, of Strictly Limited, which was in September. You know, we, we did the, the bespoke bottle mold. Um, which took a, a while to get to get exactly right, um, and we realized that yeah, using this one mold for all our whiskey products would would be a good idea. Would give us some sort of uh, consistency. And then Metalla, you know, we had, we had a brand called uh, Big Strand. Actually, we we had a series, so we had. River Flow, which was a, a Highland single malt. We had Kirkwall Bay, which was a Orkney single malt, and Big Strand, which was a um, an Isla single malt. I can tell you, I can tell you, there's there's still some floating around in Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> and and again, great liquid. Um, but unless you know it, and unless someone Unless you walk into a shop and someone tells you, you know what, this is really good liquid, um, and they, they're able to convince you to believe them, you wouldn't necessarily pick that off, off a shelf. Um, it had no identity, um, and we couldn't really understand why it existed. Um, it's not something that we internally necessarily believed in. So we realized we want to create an Isla single malt Scotch whiskey due to the family connection to Isla. It makes absolute sense for us to have our own brand of Isla malt. We've got significant inventory and access to, to inventory of Isla malt that, that not a lot of other people have. Um, and we've got the opportunity to create something that we believe in, that we decide why does this brand or product exist? Um, so we came up with Metalla, um, and we've got th- three core expressions: um, the Terra, which is uh, refers to the peat; um, Mara, which refers to the sea; and Strata, which refers to the rock foundations. And the whole idea about about Metalla brand is to take people on a flavor journey across Isla and to show them that Isla is not one dimensional. You know, we've got the opportunity to borrow from different distillers or distilleries on Isla. So we don't always have to borrow from the same one. Um, and, and that gives us a, a very unique opportunity to show people what Isla as an island um, is all about. And does that mean because they're single malts, obviously, right? So yeah. does that does that mean that 
and and they're not batched, right? So there's no batch one, batch two with these. No. So so, so, so Terra will always be from the same distillery. Okay, I see what you're saying. So each each, each would of the be three. the same. Yeah, gotcha. but, but the three of them doesn't necessarily have to be from the same distillery. Gotcha. Is there is there uh, further plans for Mactala to like expand that range or special like Mactala releases or anything? I think it's been really well received here, anyways. Ooh. So, um, yeah, just kind of wondering what the future holds for that brand. Yes, uh, yeah, it, it has been it's been phenomenal. Um, we, we don't have enough liquid of Strata, our fifteen year old, which is a combination of bourbon and and sherry wood. Um, so that's been on allocation for the for the first year year and a half. Um, but yes, the, the, there are plans um, to release another Nutella, um, which will be a, a limited edition. Um, and it's it's coming pretty soon. So the liquid's ready. The liquid's um, been agreed. The the label is just about signed off um so all if all goes well we should um release it within the next three to four months it's interesting because uh sean mccalder he hosted a tasting on the weekend and it was a blind all 15 year old whiskeys blind and number eight was the mac tala 15 and it just created because it's you know a blind distillery an unknown distillery it created a lot of discussion on where it could possibly be and you know some people were dead set that it was you know from Bomore, and then others were dead set that it was kalila and it's just interesting when you don't know the distillery and the you know there's some people that have very strong opinions that they can pick out which one it's from and obviously like we don't know <laughs> unless you unless you're going to spill the secrets on the podcast for us we won't know well, and... actually that's why we brought neil on actually <laughs> <laughs> but but the the problem with with that is you know last week i, I did a, a a tasting with a whiskey club in in the arab emirates and exactly the same thing happened we we tasted Mara, and you had a, a few people that were and these are, you know, whiskey enthusiasts, um, well-educated whiskey drinkers. And there were some people that were, when they nose it, they say, oh, oh, but it is definitely from this distillery. Then they taste it and they go, ooh, hang on a second. Maybe it's actually from this other distillery. And then you had another guy come in and say, absolutely not, it's definitely from the saloon number three um and that's for me the whole point of it is one it creates conversation and two in all honesty it doesn't matter where it comes from if you like it drink it because if i tell you uh, it comes from if I if I tell you well, it comes from um, Art Bag. If you know, why don't you just go and buy Art Bag? 
Because <laughs> it's probably going to be a lot more expensive, Neil. <laughs> Especially if they put it in heavily charred casts, right, Sean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it's, it, it, it just goes to show, like, the that Mactala, nobody knew where it was, where it was from, and everybody agreed that it was one of the best ones of the night. It, it featured very high in the overall rankings at the end of the night. So, yeah, I mean... So, we don't need to know it. There's lots of, you know, lots of independent bottlers and, um, you know, we have Costco over here that do bottlings and they never tell you where it's from. And mm. as long as it's good, we'll drink it. And it, and, when, and I find when you don't know where it is, it, it lets it be a little more inexpensive and more accessible for the drinker. And mysterious. Yeah. Ooh. yeah. And I mean, at, at the end, it's Nutella. You know, it's Metella, 15-year-old. Um, and our, our job at the moment, because it's not all batch, is, um, or batch bottlings, is to make it as consistent as possible. So the next time you pick up a bottle of Metella, 15-year-old, it should taste exactly the same as the, the, the previous bottle. Um, and I suppose, that, I mean, that's the whole idea of creating a, a brand is that instead of buying a distillery, you you just buying a brand. You know, old, old Perth. If you really enjoy the the liquid, you know, we don't tell people what distilleries single malt we use in the vatting process because it's irrelevant. You you buy Old Perth because the whiskey's good. And that it, it kind of lends to my next question, which was on the blending whiskey. Uh, sometimes it's still a little underappreciated in the aspect of the whiskey as a whole. But how involved are you with the actual blending, and how hard has it been to recreate some of the old Perth flavors with the different levels that you're releasing at and going forward with different batches of each, um, the original, the cast strength? Obviously, the vintages are a little different, but is it going to be something that's easily recreated yeah so old perth original cask strength and 12 year old is not batch bottlings we we create enough liquid to replicate what they would use in 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 spain in the solera system so we have a big vat um we do a, a for for us a large scale vat um and we ensure that that vat is never emptied so we always when we do a new vetting or a new blend, we always start with a really strong foundation of the the original liquid. Um, so that eliminates any big variances. Originally, um, I was involved in signing off the first liquid that we, that we put out. Um, but since then, um, Gray McKerry was our production manager. You know, his job is, is to do the vettings. Um, if there's ever uh, any issues with regards to liquid, you know, myself and 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 Graham and Jamie and, and uh, Douglas, our managing director, will will sit together and have a look at the liquid. But Graham's in charge of of liquid. I'm still quite involved with uh, Carmore liquid selection, um, but in terms of Old Perth and, and Metalla, um, that, that's all up to up to Graham. You, you told me in a conversation, I won't give any, but you just, I asked you about casks and 
Um, you, you said, you just said like, it is, it, you have a lot of casks and a lot of that is because of the access through the Morrison family. Um, and I'm sure as the company's growing, that is, it is a huge advantage to have those generational ties, especially now with so many indie bottlers. Um, do you just want to give us, I know Sean's going to be pulling the bung here pretty quick, but do you just want to give us a little bit of an idea of how fun it is to walk through those warehouses and pick Carnmore strictly limited releases and celebration of the cast releases with all the casts you have there? No, it's certainly our biggest asset, I, I think, um, and the biggest privilege um, working yeah, in, in those warehouses is the, the variety of stock, both from very, very young to stock that's, you know, from the, the 80s. Um, we don't have f full access to everything, but um, but yeah, it, it certainly makes, I suppose that's one of the most enjoyable parts of the job is um, having having a look at the liquid every, every time we do a new Strictly release um, and understanding, you know, which casks we can add together, which ones we would keep for individual or private casks or exclusives. Um, because, yeah, a, a lot of them are very similar, but every now and again, you open a, a cask and you just go, wow, that's, that's something unique. That's something special. Um, we should keep an eye on that. And yeah, our ambition always has been to be as close to the liquid as possible. Um, and it's sometimes difficult when you have so many casks because you, you literally, you know, I'm the sales director. I've got a, a job other than liquid selection. My job is not to go and nose every single cask in the warehouse. That's, we don't have a person that, that does that. But um, to have an idea of what we've got in the warehouse and what we've got access to is, is super important. Well, and you... And fun. Yeah. <laughs> you, you helped... With uh, the Edmonton Scotch Club, obviously our our um, our first full cask purchase, and you were walking through the warehouse, you found a cask that had like a note on it. Oh, uh, yeah, well, we won't say too much, but it was, and you pulled the bung on that, and this is a good segue to Sean pulling the bung. But it was the same thing. You said you tasted that stuff, and you were like, you know, this is something special. And the same thing, we got the sample, and the minute I nosed it, I was like, oh my, we have a we have something special here. So. There's a bit of a cool tie. No, but honestly, you, you hear some of these, some of these stories about people finding um, a cast that they didn't know about, or a hidden cask, or a cast that got lost, and that was honestly what, what one of those. We we didn't, I didn't expect that cast to be there. Um, so there are some good stories. <laughs> well, the club loved it. It sold out in like a, about a day. So anyway, Sean, yeah. Sean, right. are you ready to pull the bong? I'm ready. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. I want to have them answered immediately. Are you threatening me, Dick? That's not a threat. What? That's a fact. I'll fucking kill you. What do you want to know? What? Say what again. Say what again. I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! All right, um, 
so when we have our guests on our show, we do something called Pulling the Bung Round, and it's a quick, rapid-fire question. So I'm just going to ask you 10 quick questions, and you just uh, respond with the first thing that comes to your mind. Jesus, this could be dangerous. It could be dangerous, but it won't be that bad, I don't think. <laughs> right, go. Okay. Uh, what sport are you best at? Golf. What sport are you worst at? Um, oh, what's a curling? Curl. Okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Okay. Um, favorite country that you've been to that you haven't lived in? Um, that I haven't lived in. Jeez. Italy. Okay. All right. Mm. Um, oh, my wife, I have to say that. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, a place that you haven't been to but would really like to visit? Argentina. Nice, I agree. Mm. Your oh, yeah. favorite whiskey that Morrison Distillers has released? Uh, Metalamara. Okay, nice. that might lead uh, to the next question of which brand <laughs> do you feel more attached to, Old Perth or Mactala? Mactala. <laughs> One person alive that you would like to have a dram with? Um, right now. Yeah, they're alive currently. <laughs> if I, in, I would like to have a dram with right now. My brother. Oh, okay. Perfect. Um, I one person not alive that you'd like to have a dram with. My grandfather. Oh, nice. And yeah. your favorite distillery? Manachmore. Nice. And Haggis, yes or no? Yes. Okay, right on. You know all those those aliver uh, dram questions. Usually, it ends up going like the route of like a real like you want to like for me it'd be like Barack Obama, and then yeah. Dad it would be like I don't know James Dean or something. But you went family. That's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. If you consider where we've been the last two years, um, and unfortunately, I got to see my brother in, in December. But I was asked exactly the same question in Milan Whiskey Show in November of last year. And I haven't seen my family for probably two and a half or three years. Um, and yeah, that was, it just made you realize, you know, who, who the real people are that you, you want to stay connected to and, and to have around you. Yeah, for sure. So like that, well, you know, I, um, the rare drams rep who represents Carnmore here in Alberta, uh, bearded Dave, I see him way too, way too much. So he would not be my, he would not be my answer. I would, I would say someone else for sure. <laughs> Do you, um, before we get going, Neil, I have to ask you because we know now you're called Morrison distillers. Um, but we have not talked about the distilling side of things. Do you have an update yeah. for people on the distillery, Aberargi? Um, what is the, it's got to be the juice has to be getting up there in age now, doesn't it? Well, it's uh, November 2017. 
we started this thing. So we're just, just north of four years. Okay. But I suppose an update is, is the distillery is still there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's, it's still functional. And we are creating quality, well, we're creating liquid of a consistent character at the moment that probably in the first year um, we struggled with while they were trying to figure out the um, the components and the equipment and how to, to run the, the site. Um, so our biggest objective at the moment is to fill good quality liquid into a variety of casks so that one day when we are ready to speak about Aberarga as a bottled single malt whiskey brand, um, we have as many different colors to choose from. Not taking any shortcuts, not uh, putting out new make spirits. You're basically, when the, when the liquid is ready, the liquid will be ready. Yeah. Um, if you look at the bottle of, of any one of our our branded bottles, Old Perth, Carmore, um, Metalla, you know, there's the word patience is, is written on the bottom. Um, and that's one of our values. And every single time we speak about Aberargi, we just get reminded that um, be patient. I like it. Well, you've been uh, patient with us today and spending an hour with us. We really appreciate it, Neil. I know we've been trying to trying to do it for a while um and it's i mean you and i obviously have a a history i really enjoy working with you but also just keeping in touch with you i know you mentioned manicmore is your favorite distillery um you sent me over a bottle of manicmore for my 40th birthday 1990 the 1990 manicmore and that stuff yes. is i tell people like if you want bourbon cast perfection that 1990 well, manicmore might have been it yeah, I mean, the answer, well, the question before, the best quality liquid that we've ever put out, um, you know, for, for me, it, it is that bottle. The best product we have is, or liquid, is Metalamara, but a, a single bottle in terms of liquid quality is that 1990 Yeah, and I don't have any left to uh, share absolutely. with any, any of these people. You know what? We might have to go. I could go on a um some auction sites and see if there's one kicking around because sometimes those old indies from unknown distilleries they they, they don't go for as high as the art bags or the spring yes. bank so you, i might be able to track one down i'll let you know if i can yeah, yeah you should do that for sure <laughs> i would also like to uh try that whiskey <laughs> uh thanks for joining us neil do you have any other closing comments sean or sean or neil no, just thank you so much for coming on, telling your story, um, you know, going through the, the different products and the, the distillery as well. Um, I know we all enjoyed talking to you, and I, I guarantee that tons of people will be listening to this um, due to the fact that the brands are pretty integral in the whiskey scene in Canada. Yeah. So we do thank you. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, thank no, you it's, it's an ab absolute pleasure. And, um, yeah, I really hope that I can get over there at some stage and um, we can we can have a few drams in, in person. 
Yeah, we would love it. We we are yeah. gonna be able to start doing stuff soon. So to get you back here for another Jams for Fams would be fantastic. I'm sure Dave and Kenny are gonna want to use you when you're here, but uh, we'll 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 claim it's for it's for charity and we'll steal you away for one night. <laughs> Super. Well, thank you very much. Good night. Hey, thanks again for checking out Lost in Translation. If you like what you hear, take a second to subscribe to the show and let all your friends know about this wonderful, educational, and entertaining podcast. If you want to connect with the show, check out parkwhiskeysociety.com. You can connect with each of us on Instagram at pws.media, Edmonton Scotch Club, YEG Whiskey Nights, and Dark Cloud Whiskey. Also, check out uh, the YouTube channel, Lost in Translation, for show clips. If you want to email us, you can email us at lostintranslation at gmail.com. Thanks again, everyone, and have a good one.